Good morning again. Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 20? Acts chapter 20. This morning we're uh, going to be looking at a lot of detail, but I want to kind of think about the nature of the church behind all the detail and, and think about that, and especially as it relates to us. Uh, first thing I'd like to say, though, is yesterday the experience of being in the prison uh, with the uh, offenders was just an amazing time. I do thank you for all who came out for that. I know it took a lot of time to get that together, and so she may hate this, she may not, but uh, I think Alicia just has done an amazing job, and we should honor her for that. So, <laughs> so thank you. And thank you for inviting us to participate in that. It's, it's always fascinating. I mean, you know by now, I kind of like to know how things tick, and I, I think about those things. And so uh, yesterday, being with uh, the inmates, and I talked to a, a couple of them about the spiritual conditions in the, in the prison, and there's a lot of astrology in there and, and such things. And that seems to be the culture of our day. And I think we're shifting. It's ironic we see some of this in Acts. We're kind of shifting away from that. We're in an intellectual society more towards those kind of things. And there's the, the power dynamic, which plays out in some cultures. I think we're seeing more of that in the United States. Sunday school, we just talked about Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And we had to take a look at that and the power dynamics there and trusting the Lord. So I think as we go through these, these days, we're entering a phase where how we express our faith is going to take on new forms. Uh, the other day I was flying, I flew to Pensacola to see my mother and uh, she, uh, you know, in her condition probably doesn't have a lot longer and, and so as I was flying there I had a layover in Dallas and in the restaurant uh, as we were chatting a lot of the people around and the tables were conversing with each other and with the waitress or server and uh, what was fascinating is that they were very uh, interested in astrology and they were talking about you know what's your sign and this and that well oh we can be good friends then and it was that kind of thing and and I realized that that's where our culture's gone much more than maybe we realize and and so again the power dynamics and I think we have to we have to consider that so as you look at the book of Acts Acts is not an abstract book it's a book that shows the reality of humanity and the reality of faith in the journey we have and how to live it out in a world that, you know, maybe back in the day people respected the Bible and all of that, and you could throw that out at them to convict them, but today that's not even a given with people. What's their foundation? They may have none. And we have to realize that. So as frack as a church, I was going to say as you as a church, I would say we as a church think about the future, we think about the pastor to come, we think about where we go as a ministry we have to think about that in the context of the days we're in and how can we have the most impact, still teach the Word of God, be faithful to that, but how do we relate to people that don't even have that foundation at all? And what is God calling us to do as a church? And I think that's a huge question. So today we're going to be in Acts chapter 20, the passage on staying alert, and uh, we'll get into that in just a moment. Preview of coming attractions here. Next week, Kent Sovine, our district superintendent, will be here. I called his bluff. He said he would like to come sometime and see the body and maybe speak. And I said, all right, well, I'll tell you what. December 11th is a good day because we have the, the church business meeting. So I'm just asking you to be on your best behavior next Sunday morning. 
845, what could be more exciting than to start your morning with a cup of coffee at a church annual meeting? So we look forward to having you here. Kent will be here for that. He'll be taking notes, I'm sure. No, I'm kidding. Uh, and Kent will be preaching next Sunday morning. So I'll be sitting back and, uh, and listening, uh, even though I do hate to give up the pulpit, but it's not mine, so we'll do it. Uh, Son of David on December 18th, I love to talk about the story of Jesus Christ in all of its forms. And so uh, I want to talk about that in preparation for Christmas time. Christmas is uh, December 25th, as you know, Sunday morning. Uh, he's here. Now, y'all need to come prepared for the occasion. Uh, you know, bring your stuffed animals, bring your fuzzy slippers and everything else. Uh, but uh, we're going to observe Christmas, we're going to celebrate, and we're going to enjoy being together and thinking about the Lord. So um, I am excited about that. That's Christmas morning. And we have visitors coming ourselves, so bring your visitors. And, you know, rope them and bring them in, drag them in. That's Christmas morning. Saw this, uh, this week... Um, on Twitter, that paragon of truth, and uh, it was like, this is what's going to happen in 30 years, climate-wise. And I was studying that and looked closer, and I was like, that's the Mediterranean Sea. Look at it closely. It's the Mediterranean Sea superimposed over the United States. And I was looking at that at first, and I thought, well, half of Alabama is going to be a beach. This will be interesting. Uh, I'm not even sure Auburn will be underwater or whatever. They're all wet anyway, right, Alicia? I'm just kidding. Ha ha, just a joke, just a joke. <laughs> I want to thank you for being here on my last day at Frack. <laughs> so everybody's into maps and everybody's into the Mediterranean. And that reminds us that we have a map here. Now, again, there's a lot of detail today, I think more than normal even, and it might get a little confusing. So I'm going to do what I did last time and say, let's pretend we're taking this map up here. We're going to slide it under your chairs. And so every one of you is sitting in a spot over the map, you're in the Mediterranean, some of you are all wet, and some of you are not. So if we do that, then what direction's that? What's that? What's that? And what's that over here? Okay, great. So all of you are in some place here, and uh, Rome is off the map, but let's pretend Will is Rome over there. Uh, so down over there with that uh, motley crew that camps out in the corner down there, there in the area of Jerusalem, we have Sadducees and Pharisees over there, as you can see. So... Over on this side, this would be Asia, also known today as Turkey, and over here would be Greece, and so Europe's here, Asia's here. So that gives you an idea. This would be the Aegean Sea. So basically what we're going to see with all of that today, I've chosen the words that are in the passage, and we're going to see Paul kind of move down this way, and he's going to end up down there with you guys, with the Shannons, he's going to meet with the elders of Ephesians. So that's where he's going to go. So he's kind of bouncing around. It might get a little confusing. But let's take a look at Acts chapter 20, verse 1. Um, Paul in Macedonia and Greece. Well, when last we saw Paul, a couple of weeks ago, he was in Ephesus, and as typical, things get stirred up, and he almost lost his life. It could have happened. But they drag him out of there, and they say, it's probably best for you to, to mosey on. And so in verse 1, after, notice your word of timing, words of timing are all throughout this passage. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he had a real ministry of encouragement, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. Now where is Macedonia? On our map, upper left-hand corner there, 
It's where Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea are. That's Macedonia, Greece. It's in the northern part of Greece. So Paul says farewell. So this means that Paul had to hop across the water and go up to Macedonia. And he goes through these regions. And he had given them much encouragement. Now, if you're observing here, you'll notice we've seen the word encouragement twice. Paul would go back through areas where he had ministered. He had established churches and led people to Christ and established churches. And he would encourage them. And that was huge to him. And he didn't care if he was beaten or whatever. Uh, his mission was to encourage them. Well, I'm sure he cared if he got beaten. But basically, his priority was to encourage the, the church. And that's what he did, which gives me a little clue as to what the role is of our church leaders, our pastors, our elders, is that there are several things we're here to do, but one of them is to encourage the body of Jesus Christ. One of Satan's greatest tools is discouragement, and he wants to discourage all of you and discourage you in your faith and ding your relationship with God, so we must encourage one another, and that's what Paul does. So he had given them much encouragement, emphasizing how much, and he came to Greece. Now, you see where Greece is on the left-hand side in Achaia. That's the region. He may have gone down into Corinth, uh, the famous city of Corinth, where there was a lot of ministry and a lot of crazy stuff there, too. It was not an easy place to minister. And so he came there, and there in verse 3, he spent three months. And so he stayed there a while to teach them, to establish them, because he knows he will not last a lot longer. Paul knows that... I don't know if swan song is the phrase, but it's kind of going to be his swan song with these people in this passage. Uh, so all of a sudden, it's happened quickly, but we're getting near the end of Paul's active ministry, and he wants to make sure these churches are established well, and he leaves a good foundation. And this is going to be a theme today. Um, you know, I, I've worked with ministry organizations before and ministry boards where they were like, and churches, they would say, we've got to have our policies in place because we want to make sure for the next 3,000 years we are well-founded. We've got to have our doctrinal statement in place because we want to make sure that we're pure in doctrine for the next 5,000 years. Now, the desire to be stable is a good one, but what I say is that your stability is not based upon the documents you have in a repository somewhere. In fact, it's amazing with uh, ministry leaders and administrators, I'm saying this for all of us and everybody everywhere, how difficult it is to actually know where the documents are. Now, I'm not speaking specifically about our team here, I'm really not, but I've been in plenty of situations before when somebody will say on a board, well, what do our bylaws say? Well, I don't know, we'd have to find them. And I'm like, you ought to know what they say. You're a board member. You have fiduciary responsibility for the corporation. You should know. But they don't. So my point is that it's not a document on your hard drive that gives you stability. Your point of stability comes from your commitment to Jesus Christ day by day as a group and as individuals. And when that commitment starts to slide... It doesn't matter what your documents are, because we've seen from the United States government, it doesn't matter what we've officially held to. It matters what our behavior is and whether it's sinful or godly. Because at the end of the day, that's what happens, right? And we see it in politics, whatever side of the aisle you're on. 
and we see it in churches and everything else. It is not your document. Now, I'm not saying your document shouldn't be good because I'm a document hound. But I'm saying your actions have to line up with your documents. And if you have a statement of faith, you need to hold to it. If you say, this is what we do, well, hold to it. Otherwise, you're being hypocritical, and that's not good. So Paul knows that his ministry with these saints is to encourage them and to bring in the kind of stability in their lives that he has discipled them to where they make the choices they need to make day by day, year by year, individually and as a group. Because only then will the gospel continue to be propagated. So my prayer for Frack is for all of you to be faithful to the Lord day by day, to be in the Word of God day by day. Every day you should be in the Word. To have leadership that honors the Lord and puts the Lord first, that seeks the glory of the Lord and the will of the Lord, and that also nurtures the people in the congregation, especially the younger people, whatever you define that as, to be the same way because they're your future. And so I caution you to make sure that you are discipling the younger generations here at FRAC because you're going to have to hand the baton to them and they're going to have to be prepared and whose responsibility is it to prepare them? It's yours as a congregation. So it's great to have older people in the faith. It's wonderful, but the other side of that is let's transmit that. And if we don't, we're going to get what we have. Our society's crazy. And I wonder, I think about it a lot, how did we get this way? And that's a story for another time, but you know, how do we get all the broken homes and everything else? It's just crazy. So Paul encourages them, and he's also concerned about their spiritual and biblical stability. So he spends three months there in verse 3. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria. Now, where you see Antioch on the right-hand side, that's kind of the region of Syria. So he's going to head across the Mediterranean Sea to Syria. That's his plan. But as often as the case, there's a plot against him. They're after his neck. And so because of that, he has to adjust his plans. And so he decided it would be safer to return through Macedonia. Maybe they were looking out for him at the ports and they were going to kidnap him at the port. I don't know. So he goes up to Macedonia again. Now we have a number of people accompanying him in verse 4. I don't expect you to memorize all these names, but um, verse 4, Sopater, the Berean, the Bereans, remember, they were in the Word of God, and they opened the Word of God to affirm what Paul was saying. So Sopater probably has been well discipled. He's the son of Pyrrhus. He accompanies him. And of the Thessalonians, a church that Paul spent a lot of time with and wrote two books to at least, First and Second Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, Gaius is a pretty common name, there were a number of them, but Derby, remember, on the first missionary journey, Paul goes up into Asia, he ends up up there uh, under where the word Asia is, and uh, he establishes a church in Derby, so that's been going on for quite a while. And Timothy, the famous Timothy, he received two books. And of the Asians, in other words, those who come from the area of Turkey, Tychicus and Trophimus. So what we see here is there's a diversity of location. Paul established churches all over the place. He discipled people all over the place to build that network and that foundation in the early church. 
And so we see the diversity of Paul's ministry impact. Now they split probably for safety because it was probably safest for them not to all travel together. And I've been on trips like that where we kind of dispersed. And so in verse 5, notice these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. So you get a lot of detail here. So Paul is moving gradually toward Jerusalem. He wants to be there by the Passover. And these guys are kind of bouncing around the Aegean Sea. And you see that here. And I, I have some pictures. Here's the view from Troas. Troas, by the way, was, you, you've heard of Troy. It was not too far away from Troy. This is the view. Uh, Asos, we're going to see in a bit. There's the Temple of Athena there on the water, a beautiful scene outside of the temple itself. Uh, from Asos, if you look across the water, it's about 40 miles away, but um, Lesbos, the island of Lesbos. And to answer your question, the answer is yes. Uh, so that's Lesbos. Mytilene is the city at Lesbos, and that's Mytilene today on the island of Lesbos. And uh, Chios, this is where Homer, the famous Greek poet, came from. He wrote the Odyssey, ironically, which is kind of Paul's story. So that's Chios. I mean, these places are beautiful. And then Samos. Uh, Pythagoras came from there. At least that's my theory. But uh, that's Sam Samos. Okay, and so now back to the map. So you get to see kind of how they look. They look kind of similar, but I thought you might appreciate some photos of it. So Paul and his team are bouncing down the Aegean Sea in a secure way, and they're staying for a while at different places. And so now in verse 6, he ends up in Troas, which you see on the screen there. And he's going to speak and speak and speak and speak. So verse 7, on the first day of the week, which we know as Sunday, the day of the resurrection, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. Brothers, I, I'm really feeling convicted about something. <laughs> we are just biblically not doing it right. So my plan to today is to speak until 4 a.m. in the morning tomorrow. So y'all hang around. We'll bring in pretzels and, and water. Yeah, there you go. We're just not doing it right. But one reason Paul did it this way is because he knows this will be his last hurrah. And he's taking all the time he can to encourage them, to train them, to teach them, to work with them through their issues, to disciple them. And this is going on. Now, you have the benefit of lighting here today, but back then, before electricity, of course, the only way they would have light at night was to have what? Candles. And so, it was a very homey kind of thing. And I'm sure during the service, they're passing out essential oils and things like that. And so in verse 8, there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. Well, what do we know about lamps? A number of things. They're beautiful, they're homey, they're nice, but they also consume oxygen. So probably what's happening during this time, it's getting warm and fuzzy and everything else. It's, you know, they need a bunch of puppies in there right now. And, it, and with all the lamps, the oxygen level is probably depleting. And if you're a young man... You're probably going to not listen that much anyway, maybe, except for our team here. Our guys are great. 
And so there's a young man named Eutychus. Now, Eutychus was probably somewhere between 8 and 14 years old. So let's just say 10 or 12, just to put in the middle. And Eutychus is sitting at the window. Now, I don't know where Mrs. Eutychus's mother or whatever would be, you know. But I would imagine my mother would say, Sid, get out of the window. But for some reason, Eutychus is allowed to sit at the window. And verse 9, he sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. I find this verse very encouraging. (laughs) And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. Now I take this as a miracle that God had given Paul the ability to uh, be a a conduit for miracles, and that's what we have here. I take it that Eutychus really died when he hit the ground. I've told you there's a lot of subtle humor in Acts, and frankly, this is kind of funny. I mean, I'm sure it hurt Eutychus, but, um, you know, uh, excuse me for a second. We need to take a break. I need to go raise somebody from the dead here. So Paul runs downstairs. They get Eutychus. He heals him. It's okay. He's alive. They bring him back up, and what does Paul keep doing? He keeps preaching. Classic preacher. So Paul keeps talking. So he goes back up there, and they're carrying Eutychus up there, and I can just imagine how he was fussed over. Hey, okay, can we get you something to eat and everything else? You know, and he's asking for every snicker bar he can get. He is healed. He is alive. And so verse 11, when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, He conversed with them a long while, until daybreak. This story continues. But he has to, because this is his last chance with them. And he departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Kind of understatement. So anyway, it all works out, and that's great. So Eutychus survives. He got a story to tell for the rest of his life. So in verse 13 now, after that story is finished in Troas, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. So they set sail, Paul went by land. Again, they go differently for security reasons probably. And so Paul meets him at Asos, you see the picture up there. We took him on board and we went to Mytilene, the island of Lesbos, the city of Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios, the home city of Homer. So I'm sure they were proud of that. The next day, we touched Samos, and so they're moving their way down. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, for the day of Pentecost. So Ephesus was... On the water at that time, there was a harbor there, but he knew if he went to Ephesus, it would take some time. Everybody would want to talk with him and everything else, and so he decided to bypass Ephesus. He was in a hurry, and he summoned the elders from the Ephesian church, which he had founded. And so they come to him, and he meets with them at Miletus, and he gives an amazing uh, message to them. We only have a couple of times in Acts where there's a message to the church only, to believers only, and this is one of them. And so in verse 17, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, 
you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now I'm going to Jerusalem. So let me stop for a second. Let me go back up there. They worked together. They suffered together. Paul was faithful to teach them the word. Uh, it was painful. There were tears. And there were many trials that took place. And he had to serve the Lord with humility. And here is the chief apostle now, basically. And yet, he has to serve with humility, and the way that God ensures that he's humble is through the trials and other things. Paul had it rough. It was not easy. But he was faithful, and if we get anything out of the life of Paul, it's to see his faithfulness, and that's what we see here. And he was not afraid. I mean, he might have been afraid, but he didn't give in to it. He did not shrink from declaring anything that was profitable. If the Lord laid on him something to share with them from the Word of God uh, as it existed then or from the Spirit, he would do so. And he would teach in public, and he would go from house to house. The main thing is he wanted to keep teaching them and letting them know about the Lord and the gospel and how it all worked. And he would speak to Jews, and he would speak to Gentiles, and tell them that they had to repent, which means to change their mind toward God and to come to Christ in faith. And that's what he did. It's a testimony to his faithfulness. And now it's time for another uh, part of his story. And this is an interesting part. I've already been uh, told this morning that the men of the Bible study are waiting to hear what I say about verse 22. All right, Rich Walker, here's your time. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. All right, how many of you have common sense? And if you knew that you were going to suffer imprisonment and afflictions everywhere you went, would you take the trip? Oh, at times like this, I can't help but think of the book, Your Best Life Now. Every day in prison, Paul was living his best life now, right? <laughs> By the way, just as I shared this in Sunday school. This is something that occurred to me after yesterday is there is no shame in imprisonment. There is no shame in imprisonment. The greatest names of the faith, some of the biggest names we know, so to speak, in the kingdom of God were imprisoned. Name one. Paul, name another. I mean, name another. Jesus. Old Testament, New Testament, church history, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Richard Wormbrand, Martin Luther King, Martin Luther were imprisoned. It may be what you did that causes guilt and shame, but to be in prison is not a shameful thing on its own. We need to know more about the story. So here's Paul anticipating that this is going to happen. 
And when it refers to the Spirit in verse 22, Rich, to answer your question, I believe it's referring to the Holy Spirit. And I think that what we see here, well, let me say this. I have known some pastors and teachers who will teach that Paul was disobedient to God because God told him this is what's going to happen to you. And that Paul, in spite of God saying that, went anyway. Because on this trip, Paul is going to have a number of people come up to him and say, the Holy Spirit has told us that you're going to be in prison. The Holy Spirit has told us you're going to be in chains. Bad things are going to happen to you. Kind of with the assumption, don't do the trip. Well, I'll tell you what, Paul, if he heard, don't do the trip because bad stuff's going to happen, Paul would say, there's no reason for me to live then. Because I live for the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul would have said, well, there's no point for me to live. Because what am I going to do? Sit around and eat bonbons and watch soaps. I mean, no. This is Paul's mission. And my take on this, and I know it's debated a bit, but my take is that this shows God's telling Paul, Paul, you're going to have to make a choice. I'm going to put this before you. There's an opportunity and there's a cost to it. What will you choose to do? And I think it highlights Paul's utter dedication to Jesus Christ. That he would hear this and say, even though this is the case, I am committed to go on this trip, not knowing what's going to happen except that it's going to be bad. I think we see here Paul's dedication. His determination. Praise God. Without it, Acts 1.8 would not have been fulfilled. Do you ever think about that? What does Acts 1.8 say? The gospel go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. Why does Acts end in Acts 28? Because the gospel hits the capital city of Rome in Acts 28. Acts 1.8 is fulfilled to that point. And Paul is a big part of that. So we are looking at a man of intense, infinite dedication to Jesus Christ. And rather than wondering about, you know, was he sinning and everything else, I'm not saying you're saying that, but I've heard other people say it. Why don't we look at the flip side and say, that's how focused this man was on glorifying Jesus Christ. In fact, that's what we see. Verse 23, except the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But verse 24, I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's tough. About 20 years ago, when we were in Georgia, we were running some marathons and things like that. And one day, uh, with a friend of mine, I committed to run the Tampa Marathon. And it was in December, and it was, turned out to be a hot day. It was 80 degrees at the end of the race, which is horrible for a marathon, because the heat builds up and goes nowhere. And I'll never forget, if you've ever been to Tampa, you know there's that long sidewalk, I think of the longest in the world, Bayshore Boulevard. Well, what they did was, you ran along Bayshore for miles, and it curved around, and you saw the finish line for miles. It was torment. And I'll never forget that. But it was a great illustration because you're looking at the finish line, but you're not there. And the only way to get to it is through pain. And it was a hot day. And in a small way, that's exactly what Paul was saying. There's a finish line. I want to finish the course, but I've got to get through all of this to get to it. And that's what he's saying. And he is so dedicated, nothing will stop him. And so in verse 25, he says, 
Now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. I wash my hands of the blood. I am not responsible. I have given you the truth. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Anything related to the gospel, Paul got into. Now, he shifts gears and he's going to talk to the elders about the elder role. And I think this is where we can take a lot of it practically for us as elders in the church. And so this had definite application here to the elders of Frack. There are really a couple of things in general for elders to do. One is to nourish the body, and the other one is to protect the body. You could look at it that way. Now, churches like to tie their leaders up in a lot of different things, but fundamentally, they're doing their job when they ensure that you are nurtured in the Word of God and ensure that you're protected. So in verse, 27, uh, verse 28, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves, elders, and to all the flock. Don't let any of the sheep get away and be killed. In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Very similar to 1 Peter chapter 5, the role of the elders to oversee, to ensure the nourishment and protection of the flock. And the cost, this flock was bought by Jesus Christ. The blood of Christ, the death of Christ, bought this congregation. And elders are given the responsibility to take care of what is entrusted to them because the price paid for you guys was extreme. And it is a great responsibility. And so Paul tells that to the elders, it's like, that's what's entrusted to you. Don't let it slip away. And he says in verse 29, For I know that after my departure, when I leave, the apostle leaves, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing a flock. They're going to go after you. For some reason, I've seen several stories lately about coyotes attacking dogs. Have you all seen a video of the raccoon that attacked a kid? And the mother fights it off and picks it up and throws it away. I mean, that's awesome. But in a more serious way, the wolves are coming after the flock. They're coming after you, frack. They're at the door. They're out there. They don't like you. They don't want you. They want to destroy you. Satan loves to lie, kill, and destroy. You've got a target on your back. And the elders stand in the middle. They stand in the way, and they protect the flock. And he says in verse 30, From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the, away the disciples after them from your own place. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. I've been battling for your soul. Elders, I'm handing you the baton. And now I commend to you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all who were sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. I was not in it for the money. You yourselves know these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I have shown you by, that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive now, there's no record of that in Scripture, so he heard about it somewhere else, but Jesus said that. It's more blessed to give than to receive. 
and verse 36, when he had said these things. He knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. And we know that Paul did actually have a chance to come back and see them. But I think what he's saying is that this is what I did for the Lord for you, and I'm handing the baton to the elders. The apostles would all die away, but the elders would endure. I want to share something with you. I've said it before from the pulpit. By the way, that's the Meander River in Miletus. Um, That's where the word meander comes from, because it winds around so much. That's the harbor in Miletus. The water used to come up to it. That's where they met. But this is what I want to show you. A generation later, around AD 95, John writes a letter to the church at Ephesus under the inspiration of God. This is the church that Paul gave his blood, sweat, and tears for for years. This is the church that he spoke to the elders to to say, take the baton and run with it. And in Revelation chapter 2, a message to the church of Ephesus, the angel to the, the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, etc. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. See, the wolves did come in and found them to be false. And I know you are enduring patiently and in bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. They learned endurance from Paul. They learned hard work from Paul. They learned to not grow weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And so a generation later, there's a lot of good stuff on the surface going on with the church in Ephesus. But at the heart of it, they lost their love for Jesus Christ. And we can be a church that is active and working hard and doing a lot of cool stuff. And to let that dominate us so much that we forget what it's all about. And we lose the love of Jesus Christ. May that never happen. So, Frack, there's a a message here, I think, to all of us, uh, certainly to the elders, but to all of us, that we have to do the good things, we have to work hard, we have to teach the Word, but we can never forget that at the heart of all, we do it for Him. It's for Jesus Christ Himself. It's our love for Him. And none of the rest of that ultimately will matter if we no longer love the one that we're really here to serve. It'd be kind of like a marriage that goes on for decades, but somewhere along the way, they lost the reason why they got married, and they lost the love, and they were busy, and they had breakfast together. But that they forgot they loved each other? That's what happened in Ephesus. Don't let it happen here. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for each person here. I thank you for the commitment to Jesus Christ. I thank you for our elders. They stand in the gap. They stand between this body and the wolves. I thank you for them. 
give them strength, give them wisdom. Give all of us uh, a heart of wisdom, but also a heart of love, that we may love you and keep that love and never forget that no matter how busy we are, that it's about our relationship with you. Father, guide our church as we look at the pastor for the future. Guide us next week, all kidding aside, when we have a congregational meeting. That's a really important time. It's a time for all of us to come together and discuss who we are as a body, where we're going, where we've been. I pray that that would be a blessed time of conversation and sharing. Father, I pray that you'll protect this body from the wolves that are out there and give us wisdom day by day to know how to live the Christian life in a world that is absolutely nuts. But we do it for Jesus Christ, and I pray in his name. Amen.